0: From Washington Technology, this is the Project 38 podcast. I'm Ross Wilker, senior staff writer. Diversity and leadership on that front is an evergreen subject matter in the national security and overall public sector ecosystem. That conversation has accelerated in recent times, given what's taken place around the country. So for this episode, I took it as an opportunity to sit back and listen to someone who lives and breathes the effort to discuss and push for what she calls competent diversity. Maggie Feldman-Pilch is the founder and CEO of the NatSec Girl Squad. Usually, this is the part where we describe the interview subject and their organization. But this time around, it's best to hear all that directly from Maggie herself. And that's where we began our conversation. NatSec Girl Squad, who are you and what kind (laughs) of conversation and action are you trying to put forth in the sector?
1: Sure. Um, and and I know it's usually easier for you to intro the guest, right, as you said, but I appreciate having the shot to do it myself because I know it's a little complicated for some. So, yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of NatSec Girl Squad we are a consulting company, um, to put it in kind of basic terms, focused on building competent diversity and national security and defense. So we provide technical assistance on human capital management, um, not so much or not only recruiting, but how do you recruit, retain, promote and support the force that this country needs um, to to do our job in the national security space. Um, And we're also a social impact business. So that means that um, the work we do with USG, with uh, private sector clients, uh, mostly defense contractors and, and other consulting companies, some academic institutions and civil society orgs. Um, we also provide the same, or kind of expanded, honestly, continuing ad professional development, community resources um, to individuals who we may be working with um, at their place of employment or not. Um, on average, we work with about 42,000 people each month. And yes, our name is "Set Girl Squad, but it is by no means exclusive based on gender. Um, our trainings and such are really open to anybody who is, is looking to, to do this kind of work um, as well as they can. Um, and, is really, and, and, and is committed, again, to this idea of competent diversity.
0: Why put the word competent in front of diversity? Because often diversity is just used as a word in and of itself. Yeah. By itself, what, what what do you mean by competent diversity?
1: Um, so I think particularly when we're talking about national security and defense, processes and outcomes really matter, right? Uh, yes, it, it matters who is in leadership. You know, individuals matter, but it's a team sport. Um, and it should be because the decisions we're making and the decisions we're implementing and the actions we're taking are much too important for them to be solely under the purview or the execution and implementation of one person. Um, and picking someone for any other reason besides what they can do in the job and what they bring to the team is not a good way to go. Um, so we're not interested in window dressing, right, as, as some people call it. Right? Diversity for the sake of diversity doesn't do anybody any good, especially if you, you put people in positions because you think it's the right PR play. Um, they're likely not empowered and potentially not even prepared to do the work that, that needs to be done. Um, So we're really focused on how do we train and support um, people, again, that want to do this work, especially those that are outside of what I lovingly refer to as PMS, the pale male and stale, uh, with a quick reminder that you can't do anything about how you're born, right? If you were born a white guy, that's not your fault, but you have full control over whether or not you're stale. Um, So really digging into this idea that if we continue to rely on the same systems and processes, institutions that have not just made decisions for us historically, but also kind of trained and, dare I say, created our decision makers, um, we're certainly not going to be able to address the same problems that were born out of those institutions, right? You, you can't rely on the same people to solve the problems they've created necessarily. Um, and so it's important to us that that the whole force is really prepared for issues we're facing now, and 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years
0: down the road. Well, you are right. I can't help the fact of how I was born.
1: <laughs> right. And, and we think it's important, you know, again, really this idea that the competent is not a qualifier of diversity. The, the two things go together. Um, nobody, regardless of who you are, I would hope, uh, wants to show up to work or, or show up to what they do all day and feel unprepared, feel like they can't bring them their best selves to work and contribute um, to the team in, in the way that they want and need to. Um, and really focusing on not just what is competent, right? But how do we define it? What does it mean? And what parts of it actually matter? How much of it is just you know, uh, virtue signaling and and credentialing from specific institutions. How much of it is hard skills? How much of it is soft skills? All of those things. It really digging into that, and and not just kind of sitting there with the information, uh, but doing something about it.
0: Obviously, you know, we have to note that in recent times, within the past month, there's been this broad um, broader conversation that's taken place in a lot of institutions and workplaces about this the topic of diversity and you know, in a lot of places would you mention mentioned diversity, what's your sense of how that broad conversation may have changed and shifted recently? Yeah, I think
1: that's a great question. And, you know, from my perspective, given what I do all day, and I, and I want to be clear, like MatSat Girl Squad is not a diversity or implicit bias training program or provider. That's not what we do. Um, we are focused on training people in skills they use at work like briefing and um, structured analysis techniques and What do you wear to work? You know, we have a great partnership with M.M. Lafleur, where we really kind of dig into like personal style professional life because we recognize that If you are a woman or or again kind of not like this straight cis white guy um, It's something that's factoring in into your day um, so we are not a, a, a diversity and inclusion training provider. Um, and it has been really interesting to see these conversations come up more and more in the last month. Um, I'm, I think, as I, I hope has come across in the very few minutes we, we've had this conversation so far, I'm a pretty action-focused person. Um, so is this business. And conversation is key, right? You, you've got to figure out you're, you're starting context, where are you coming from? Why are you here? Um, strategize about how to move forward? But a lot of talking doesn't doesn't solve any problems. Um, it's exciting to me to to watch and observe these conversations be, becoming more public um, and more common because that is certainly a first step. Um, but it, it's not a huge change in the pace of my day, right? because This is what I think about all the time. Um, And I think it's also important to point out that from my perspective um, and from the business's perspective and our community's perspective, we are not thinking about diversity as something that is separate. Um, It's not something that is, quote, solved. It is not something that you fix by having certain demographics um, among your top leadership. You don't hire simply a chief diversity and inclusion officer like that that's not how it works those things matter um but from our perspective really our argument our value proposition whatever you want to call it is that diversity is not something special it is merely good force planning right and and people have heard me say if you are soft on diversity you are soft on defense Full stop. There's no room for for conversation, disagreement, argument, etc. there for
0: me. You're putting yourself out there with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean it. Again, like I, you know, I, I think some people when they first hear that, they they bristle a little bit and you know that makes me laugh. <laughs> um, I, I think you shouldn't say something unless you mean it. You shouldn't type something unless you mean it. Mean it. Um, I'm known for for meaning exactly what I say and being able to back it up so that's good um, but I would I would say that the part of why that core idea is so important to me and, and towards the business and, and the community um, is that it's true <laughs> right there's not a casual way to say that Again, going back to this idea of force planning, um, what is force planning? Force planning is looking at our resources, particularly our human resources, our people resources, and saying, this is what we have. This is where we currently are. These are the challenges we're facing. Here's how we're going to meet them. And here's how we're going to deal with what we think is coming down the pipeline. Again, 5, 10, 15, 50 years down the road. You can't do that if you've got replicas of yourself or one another, right? If, if if everybody is the same, you've created probably the most elaborate piece of Swiss cheese I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I don't want Swiss cheese in my forest planning.
0: You nudged and hinted at this but a, a little bit. So we'll reverb the this question back to you. How does the ecosystem get past the talking?
1: Yeah. So I think um, talking, and I want to be clear, right? Like talking is important um, you shouldn't embark on something like this a, a complete overhaul of of your workforce of your warfighting force your planning force whatever uh without talking first not a good idea um but what you talk about matters and certainly helps lay out what your actual action plan is right um so when i think about what it is that NASA girl squad does um we're really focused on how do you build expertise, how do you build confidence in that expertise, not just among, again, people outside of that quote, PMS, but how do you get uh, people that are recognized as experts and, and trusted advisors in the existing system to um, advocate, include, empower those that are coming up? And then what is I, perhaps most uh, important for this part of our conversation, this idea of how do you have repeatable, sustainable institutional change? And that really, to me, comes down to understanding your culture, right? You've got to know where you're starting from um, and know what it is you actually need. um, Be able to articulate what your priorities are. What are things that would be nice to have? What are kind of window dressing? um, And be able to differentiate between what I call kind of what it looks like versus what it is. And what I mean by that is, okay, while it would be nice to have, you know, gender, equity among the, you know, everybody uh, within your workforce, right? 50-50, et cetera, split. Um, Does it matter if you have a 50-50 split if 50% of those people are in the same kind of roles and they're not empowered or listened to to make decisions, right? So you've got to make a choice. Are you concerned about the descriptive statistics or are you concerned about the process? And I think the right answer is a combination of both. But the balance really depends on what the organization is, what its responsibilities are, what kind of organization it is, and what's expected of it.
0: What it looks like versus what it is, is the title of a survey that the squad helped GuideHouse carry out in the government system. We're going to link to that survey in the, in the episode description and on the page for this WashingtonTechnology.com. Why do you pick that headline?
1: Yeah, so I think people that know me and that know the business um, have heard that from me before. Um, you know, I we're having this conversation in, in the middle of a pandemic where everything has gone virtual, right? So let's pause for a second and pretend that we're in February of 2019. And I would say to you that on average, NAPSEC Girl Squad does anywhere from seven to 12 in-person trainings or events each month for its you know membership and broader community, plus stuff we do with clients. Um, And that every year we have an annual summit. Um, Our most recent one was in December of 2019, two days here in DC, um, about 500 people attended, plus speakers, exhibitors, all these things. Um, And it's not a conversation about what's it like to be a woman in national security, it's a conversation about national security, defense, intel, career planning, skill building, and it just so happens that the vast majority of attendees, speakers, presenters are women. Um, so that is, I think, uh, <laughs> a good kind of segue into like, what is Not Set Girl Squad and why is this a term um, or phrase that I use so much to the point where our wonderful partners at Guidehouse were like, oh, this is absolutely what we need to call the survey. Um, so a little bit of the context and background on the survey. Um, in 2019, I, as in me, the singular person, Maggie Feldman-Pilch, uh, met with just over 1,400 members of Not Girl Squad one-on-one or in groups of three or less. Um, so on top of that, you know, probably about 150 larger events, the conference, et cetera, et cetera. So I know a lot <laughs> about what are the challenges people are facing when they're trying to come into this field? What are they dealing with once they're in? And if they choose to leave, um, were they pushed out for a reason that that matters so to speak um, and it's great that I have all that information it's wonderful um, it's not a, a convenient or efficient way of sharing <laughs> that information right um, and so about a year into um, a teaming agreement a partnership with guidehouse um, we decided that we wanted to be able to provide this data uh, the same information to to back up sort of, right? Like what is the NAFSEC Girl Squad plan? What is our action plan? So with Guidehouse, we also worked with an academic out of the University of Alabama named Natalie Todak. Um, her background is actually in women in law enforcement. But we worked with her to really uh, take over the research and survey design um, and ensure that we had IRB approval, Institutional Review Board approval, um, to have a rigorous independent survey mechanism um, and we blasted this survey of 72 questions out um, and we kept it open I think for about 10 days and ended up with just under 850 responses um, and you know to really get back to the core of your question why is this the title again the three sections of the survey were if you're trying to enter the field what challenges are you facing once you get in what are the barriers and if you choose to leave why And I think particularly because the conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion in the national security space and more broadly in workplaces has shifted to be more center stage than it has been in the past. There's a belief that we're making um, what some might call Herculean progress. And maybe we are in some places, but it's also uh, the reality that the national security and defense space is is quite unique. (laughs) Um, For example, Less than 18% of Natsat Girl Squad uses any form of social media, and that includes LinkedIn, right? Um, So these are people who are are mostly in the background and are not necessarily inclined to raise their hand um, for for big counts and stuff. Um, And it was important to us that we really dig into not just the numbers, right? Not just that visual diversity of looking at org charts and saying, okay, how many women, how many men, how many black people, how many black women, how, like that's not what we're going for. We really wanted to ask people as much as we could and also give them the opportunity to tell us as much as they wanted, right? So there was a lot of free response to really understand what it, it being the, the current landscape is and what it is that people in this field need. So that's a bit of a longer answer than I'm sure you intended, but uh, I hope it's comprehensive.
0: The goal of this is for me to sit back and listen for the most part. So all, <laughs> all good. One of the topics that and perhaps this is just the lens that I look through as perhaps picking the easiest thread, but one of the ones that stood out to me was just the the general theme of career advancement and having opportunity in the in the ecosystem of national defense, whether that's in government, industry, nonprofit, or academia, what are some of the biggest issues that respondents reported when it came to career advancement?
1: Yeah, I think um, it, that's a great question, and there's <laughs> there are a couple of things. So I think overall, fifty-six um, percent of respondents, which again does not all of our respondents were not uh, women. Um, about half of our respondents um, filled out the demographic information page, which is is not a huge surprise to me because, again, thinking about who our members are, who our network is, right, members of the military, the intelligence community, contractors, et cetera, not people that are necessarily jumping up and down to tell you everything about themselves, right? So... Um, that understood. About 56% of, of all respondents said that they found national security and defense as a sector to be unwelcoming to women. Um, and that number goes up when um, you're looking by gender, by race, ethnicity, age, etc. Um, and I think that really kind of sets the stage. But perhaps what's even more interesting than the fact that the majority, you know, feel <laughs> not just not included, but straight up unwelcome, um, is that even you know, and, and similar levels of response when it comes to um, do you feel like you're doing the work that you wanted to do? A lot of people are saying no. I feel like I've been pushed into admin when that's not what I wanted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they are finding a way to get through what I would say um, that feeling of unwelcomeness. They are they are so mission driven that they are finding. The, the bright spots anyways and holding on to them because they care so much about the work that they do and they're so deeply committed to working in this space. Um, but really specifically, what are the challenges to, to career advancement across the sectors? Things we saw were not just your kind of traditional answers of finding a good mentor, um, but certainly some real barriers to getting in to begin with, right? The issues of security clearances and the length of um, job processes, whether as contractors or gubbies was significant. And I know um, security clearance reform is, is everybody's favorite topic to love, to hate, right? It's like actually a thing that I, I promise before I die, I will find a way to help on because it matters so much to me and I'm not that afraid of it. Um, but that certainly came up. And then something else that was particularly interesting, um, at particularly when you looked by age of respondent, was how they were treated in positions of leadership, um, meaning that younger people felt that um, they they were less empowered to lead or taken less seriously in decision making positions than um, those that are older. Not a huge surprise, but is certainly something we need to be mindful of given. The uh, impending retirement of a significant portion, right, just for, for age purposes of, of this workforce. Um, and really kind of understanding that these are people that are ready to advocate for themselves if they're given the opportunity to. So, another uh, pothole we found was getting promotions, right? Just like the very relatively simple act of, of being promoted, finding out about promotions, being encouraged to apply for them. And really understanding not just what were the written, quote, obvious, clear um, expectations, but, you know, dealing with kind of the other stuff is like, well, we're posting this promotion, but we have somebody in mind and they knew about it early because of an existing network, et cetera.
0: Put it to you, the question this way, perhaps it's not quite overt as what's depicted in Mad Men and maybe some other (laughs) shows in the 50s and 60s but the biggest obstacles are perhaps more subtle and hard and harder to see. Is that the right way to think about it?
1: Yeah. um, I think, you know, I I don't want to (laughs) gloss over the fact that some of that Mad Men era stuff most certainly still exists. Um, But at the same time, yes, you're right. It's not so glaring as, um, as, as people might expect it to be, and that makes it harder to, to squash, right? So for example, um, the weapon that FBI agent candidates at Quantico are required to uh, qualify on, right, their service weapon, um, the it, it's one, <laughs> everybody's got the same one, right? Like uniformity, yay, people think that's equal, that's equitable, great. Well, if you think about it, grip width is um, pretty important. <laughs> And generally speaking, men have larger hands than women. And so the grip width on the standard issue service weapon for the Bureau is standardized to a man's grip, which means that if you're a woman and your hand is likely, statistically speaking, to be smaller, it is harder to hold that weapon. Um, We've had a number of instances where members of the Natsai Girl Squad community were were down at Quantico um, as candidates and had a background um, familiarity with firearms. And we're really struggling to qualify in their service weapon because of that grip with issue. Um, and they reached out to us and, and we lucked out because we've also got a couple of uh, the girl squad members who were on the Marine shooting team. And so they, they had some tutoring sessions and, and all was well. But when those women become special agents and join the force, they are responsible financially for purchasing um, the modified grip for that weapon, right? To make it so that they can safely hold and control the weapon. Um, that is not like an overt, intentional slight by anybody. And I have to say that the Bureau um, has actually made some really impressive progress in the last couple of years. Um, no, it, And it has been um, after, through a lot of hard work, and, and now we're on at least three directors um, who have made a very public and meaningful commitment to broadening um, the application process, et cetera, et cetera. But so to your point, right, nobody told Peggy Olson she wasn't allowed to hold a gun, but the gun was just too big for the size of her hands, and Peggy couldn't do anything about the size of her hands. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no. It it (laughs) does. It does. I'm just, I I can't even remember the last time I held a a gun. That's all.
1: (laughs) It's been a little while. Welcome to the pandemic, my friend.
0: Yeah. So other than career advancement, and I know that before we started recording, You were talking about how you were not involved in the analysis part. You were mostly waiting for the findings of this survey to come back and then you would make of them what they were. What are perhaps one or two other things other than career advancement that stood out to you?
1: Interesting question. So um, <laughs> part of the reason I was not involved or the real reason I was not involved in the analysis is because we wanted to make sure that this was truly independent, right? The data analysis team at Guidehouse was really wonderful and and we wanted fresh eyes on this, right? This this subject area is so important. Force planning is so important that I did not want, and as a team, we did not want anyone able to be able to say, well, they got the outcomes they got because that's what Maggie wanted them to find. Um, that's not the case here, right? I Again, I really had no, uh, no role in the analysis portion. And we also did not set out to be the end all be all, right? Like there's not a, a great deal of quantitative work in this area. And we just kind of wanted to clear the underbrush and, and see what's going on. In some ways, because as I mentioned, I talk to a lot of people. This is my job all the time. Um, there wasn't a lot that I was surprised by. What I was mostly surprised by was how surprising it was to other people, which is maybe not the answer you were aiming, but it's my honest one. Because to me, a lot of this, things like you know, grip with on a service weapon um, have just become so much a part of like my daily thought processes um, that I forget what it feels like to be surprised by that information. So what was most surprising to me was, in some ways, um, how deeply felt and widespread um, what I've heard from members over the last several years really truly is, um, and how surprising that is to people when they kind of pull back and look at the numbers. Um, and, and I guess to answer a different question, which is like, what, what is the most interesting to me is, again, this idea that despite being very aware that uh, the system they're working in is not made for or by them, these people, largely women, um, are finding a way to make it work anyways. They are finding a way to not just survive, but thrive because it matters to them. Um, And what I find interesting about that isn't so much the commitment to the work, because again, you know, I talk to them all the time, not a huge surprise. I can't help but think about, those who were pushed out, um, or who, who didn't, you know, chose not to stick around or couldn't stick around because the climate was so dangerous, um, or there were so, there was so much they didn't know, they didn't know, um, that they missed out. And that's upsetting to me.
0: I know that a lot of the focus of your organization, you personally, and this Survey you conducted a lot of that was focused on what's happening the inside the government, but there's also the industry sort of equation, given that it, it's the same ecosystem that's in mm-hmm. national defense If you were to sit down and present this to a leader in government or industry, what would you want them to take away from it
1: um, I think whether it was government or industry the the key takeaway um, I think there would be kind of one for each bucket, right? The app, the trying to get in, the once you're in, and if you choose to leave. Um, I would say security clearance reform. We all talk about it. We know it's a serious problem. Everybody's got a white paper, everybody's got a working group. Um, not only has the time come to do something about it, it is quickly passing us. I can't overstate um, how significant the impact of the security clearance process and i don't just mean how intense the background checks are that's appropriate it's that it's become supposedly so expensive and time intensive that nobody will do it it's impossible to get your clearance sponsored unless you started out as an intern you know when you were seven (laughs) and you knew this is what you wanted to do um and it's really hurting us right there are people who we need uh, on this team that we're not getting. And everybody tells me they know that and nobody's in a rush to do anything about it and it makes me crazy. Um, So that would be key takeaway number one. (laughs) Number two is stop looking for somebody to come in from the outside and tell you how to fix this problem. Every problem is unique. The first thing you need to do is sit down with the people In your ecosystem, in your company, on your team, in your organization, in your agency, and have a conversation. And particularly if you're in leadership, you need to use the ear to mouth ratio, meaning you listen twice as much as you talk. And any policy that you have that works for some people, particularly if that group is senior leaders or straight white men who either don't have children or have somebody else in charge of, of family care responsibilities. If your policies are working for them, but you're asking more of other people in your orbit um, to make those policies work, they're bad policies and they're not working, right? They have to work for everybody. Um, and then I would also say, finally, recruitment is not retention. Stop asking people <laughs> to help you with the recruitment process because if your, if your retention um is doing what it should do, right? If you're keeping the talent you have, recruiting will to a certain extent take care of itself, particularly when you're talking about, again, people outside of that PMS, the pale male and stale. Why? Because there's significant research that really underscores this idea that people outside of the default, so women, people of color, especially women of color, rely on what we call a personal and professional hybrid network. So that means that they talk to their friends about their professional life. They take their input and and advice on where they should apply, where they shouldn't apply. If your talent is happy, if your team is happy, they will encourage other people to come on board with them. If they're not happy, they're not going to. (laughs) So if you keep having to recruit new people to meet your so-called quotas, you're looking in the wrong place for the whole. So those would be my three uh, takeaways.
0: That was Maggie Feldman-Pilch of the NATSEC Girl Squad talking about competent diversity in the national security ecosystem. You can subscribe to the Project 38 podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or other podcatcher app of your choice. The full library of episodes is available both there and on our website, washingtontechnology.com. I'm Ross Wilkers, and thanks for listening.